Hello, hello, and welcome to an Informed Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. And those of you watching uh, streaming, you're not going to see my face today except for my photo because I'm someplace without excellent internet. And I just want to make sure that you get the content that I want to bring to you without, you don't need to see my mug. You've seen that enough. But you are seeing the handsome mug of Javier Figueroa, who is my co-host today. He's the wonderful PhD. Is that neurobiology? No. What is it? That is correct. A oh, doctorate okay. in neurobiology and behavior. There we go. He is so awesome. I'm so uh, pleased. He's, you know, coming on the show more and more. And, you know, I, I'm kind of the passion and the mom and the amateur researcher bringing you things I discover, sending you out to explore. And Javier is more of an insider with the science and he can really uh, noodle into it and explain from his educated point of view what he's seeing from that academic um, and scientific standpoint. So I, I think we make a, a, a great mutton Jeff sort of a combination here, Javier. Um, I couldn't agree more. Good, good. So, you know, this this first hour, um, we've got some great stuff. The second hour, we're bringing you Dr. Henry Ely, and we're going to talk about treatment protocols, and especially protocols that do not have to include ivermectin, as, um, as government and the pharmaceutical industry works very hard to make sure people can't get it. Um, we need to bring you other solutions. Uh, we, we still encourage you to work to get your hands on it, but if not, then, you know, nature is bountiful in providing solutions to health, um, to health issues. So we're going to have a great hour coming up in the second hour. This first hour, we're going to be kind of talking about the pushback against these mandates, um, that's coming from everywhere. And so I'm going to play for you a little bit. Hopefully this will go well. A clip from the high wire. Um, if you haven't seen the high wire with Dell big tree, I, you know, you don't know what you're missing. This is, it's supposed to be like an hour to hour and a half news show. And it often will go on for, for three hours. Um, let's see. Um, I'm getting a message here that I'm not good at, uh, uh, no, yeah, my my name is good there, Nathan. Thank you so much. Um, but I am about to play a video, so you guys got to let me know if it's if it's going to be playing here with my connection. Um, so the high wire is fantastic. It's every week they bring you the latest. They're bringing you scientists, doctors, politicians. They're bringing you everything. Whistleblowers, people who are vaccine injured. They're they're bringing you the information that's being censored everywhere else, and then when you join them for free, you know, you subscribe to their newsletter every week following the show, you're going to get hyperlinks to read about what they posted. You're going to get hyperlinks to this study. You get everything. So you can go determine for yourself. It's not just information thrown at you and them saying, trust us. They're giving you their original sources. And so here we go. Let's, let's give this a try and see, cross your fingers that you are going to be able to see and hear this. Peter, then obviously you thought, well, I mean, would normally be involved. I'm in, you know, committees all the time. I put out protocols. So you decided to sort of reach out to the whole staff in the hospital. I'm going to pause for just a second. I forgot the lead in. This is a nurse at a major hospital who, as Dell will explain, um, was 
doing various reports, vaccine adverse event reports on her patients she was seeing that were coming to the hospital, but she was also helping file reports for other clinicians, other practitioners. And um, I encourage you to see the whole thing. We'll, we'll provide you the link to the whole show. But this, um, this bit here is some really important part of his interview. In an email and just let them know what you're doing and what issues did you sort of address in that email to, to everyone in the hospital? So the original, the original email, are we talking about the original yeah. email that I sent out? And I, I, I basically told my administrative leaders, people above me, this is what I'm going to be doing. Let me have it here. We wanted to address concerns surrounding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and being associated. Uh, I can't read that. Oh, this is thrombocytopenia you're discussing. Sort of thrombocytopenia is an issue that you're seeing, which is reduced platelets, right? It's platelets are dropped right. on the floor. So what was it we were saying in that Well, there, there was an email sent to us kind of globally to the medical staff about a syndrome called VITT, V-I-T-T. Um, and it was, if I remember, it was at the bottom of an email. Um, and I... I, I kind of saw it and I said, well, geez, I don't really understand what they're trying to say because it wasn't very detailed. So I went and looked it up and I found a journal article talking about it and kind of a, a gave a protocol of how you're supposed to approach these patients yeah. when they come into the hospital. So I sent kind of a rebuttal email to those people involved to kind of let them know, you know, I'm going to just elaborate on this further because if you do the wrong thing, you could potentially harm the patient. So. I added additional things we really should be looking at based on this journal article I looked at. And that's kind of when um, things turned turned for the for so different, warn, I guess. You're trying to warn your hospital. And I'm going to assume, like, one of the things I know was a big issue, and there's this turning point for people that got it, thrombocytopenia, drop in platelets. But a lot of times what was so um, interesting and rare with the vaccine injury compared to what we see in nature was you're getting blood clots and thrombocytopenia mm -hmm. at the same time. Blood clots usually caused by too many platelets or, you know, platelets coming together, creating blood, plot, you know, blood clots. So you give drugs to thin that out, right, mm -hmm. to drop the, the platelets in order to get rid of the blood clots. But in this circumstance, uh, I'm sure people died because there was sort of this alarm that went off. You can't give heparin. You can't give, you know, a blood thinner because mm -hmm. they're already having issues with not having enough platelets. So is that a part of what you were trying to say? Right. You could kill somebody if you're not aware of this issue. Right, and there's a blood test that you're supposed to order kind of immediately okay. if you suspect the syndrome based on these criteria. So that's all I was trying to do is just kind of elaborate a little bit further on that that original email, just to, because again, it, this could be very detrimental to a patient if we miss this. And this is something that obviously they're seeing around the world that they wrote an article about it. I right. think it was in the Journal of Cardiology or one of the cardiology journals. So I said, geez, if they're seeing it across the country, this is something I think we really need to talk about maybe a little bit further so we're all educated and what we, we should be seeing. But it's a vaccine injury. I mean, you're discussing yes. something that happens from vaccine injury. You're talking to the entire staff about it, so they're looking out for it. Uh, your your man, people above you were not very happy about that. Right, because they said that I should have, I should have uh, kind of directed that email to uh, my direct leader okay. and let that person. We actually have this conversation. So, folks, um, here is the actual phone call that took place uh, we've all been in those moments where the boss is not happy with what's happened. In this case, I want you to think about what's being discussed. She's trying to save people's lives, and the hospital doesn't want to have any part of that. Listen to this. I know you had sent out an email to some um, folks this morning, and so I wanted to 
make sure we had an opportunity to talk about this um, sooner versus versus later. So, um, you know, I listen, Deb. I know you're. you're um, I absolutely understand your concerns about the vaccine, and I absolutely believe that your um, heart is in the right place with. Um, you know, with wanting to make sure that we are doing our due diligence and reporting the adverse events. Mm -hmm. That said, the email that went out this morning really needed to be discussed, but I think that we we really need to make sure that um, we're providing a um, consistent message to our team, and we need to make sure that that's also in alignment with what what our health system is asking us to do. There's a risk to the organization from a perspective of both under-reporting and over-reporting. So how do we how do we make sure that we're um, you know we're we're sending the right message out to our providers and that they have the information that they need to be doing this correctly? Because I I share your belief that it's important that we get these reports in. Um, but I think we have to be thinking a little bit more about the process and what what sort of expected here. From what our risk team is telling us is that really you can only be reporting on the patients that you are providing direct care for. And so you cannot, and I know you've been, you know, like volunteering and being and trying to be helpful, but we need you to kind of dial it back and focus on the patients that you are directly responsible for. And then if folks do reach out to you, because you, you know, you've been saying, hey, reach out to me, um, they need to be, um, you know, directed to theirs and they need to do the process themselves okay. for the patients that they think, that they think um, need a report on, okay? Um, and so I do. I have been telling them to do it and they don't do it. The reason I took this on is because nobody else wants this response. I mean, it's brutal because you, you then will be getting phone calls from the CDC every single day as a result. And it, it I mean, the, the FDA, you know, really is the problem here because they did not advise hospital systems what we're supposed to be doing. The approach has been that this is the responsibility of the individual provider who believes that they have identified, you know, a, a, a potential um, uh, adverse a, adverse event. You know, this is frustrating, but you can't control whether or not someone else is going to put the report in. You can control what you do for your patients, and then I think if we, if you know, if, if you're concerned that folks um, are not reporting on their patients, you're welcome to put in a safe connect. You're welcome to you know, talk to Pete or myself, and we can, you know, kind of address those with providers. But like I said, I brought this up back in February, and I see no no response. I mean, that's my frustration is this, we are not doing these patients a service. And, and, and again, the FDA, they did not tell us, and they still will not tell me what conditions are we supposed to be reporting. They, they are vague. They, they, they don't know because they're, they never got the clinical trials. They, they never did them. We are the clinical trial. That's basic. I don't want us to go down a, any kind of rabbit hole here, but I think the thing we have to be like clear about, and I think, and I'm just, and I'm just going to be frank with you because that's the only way I know how to be done. But, yeah. but I will tell you, in reading, you know, 
in reading the, the, the few emails that you sent me and then in reading the email that went out to the provider, it does it does come across a, a bit um, very vaccine I think very but it comes out quite it comes out quite um, almost anti anti vaccine, right? And you know, clearly as as an organization, as a health system, right? Um, and as, you know, someone who, you know, as an organization that's working on following CDC guidelines and following the guidance of the Department of Health, we are very much advocating for patients to receive the vaccine. And we're very much working on, you know, there's, there's tons of efforts out there to try to reduce vaccine hesitancy. I have some concerns, Deb, that the, the, the tone that, that you have with this a little bit is certainly being felt on the floor, right, and being felt by your colleagues. We need to be a little bit careful about that, right? You know, I, I support your your mission and goal of wanting to make sure that we are following the law and that we are, are reporting adverse events. But I also want to make sure that as a leader in the organization and as a provider within the organization that you understand we want people to get the vaccine. Right? We want people to, to understand that on the whole, this is a very safe vaccine. Right? And so I'm going to go ahead and pause it right there. It, it goes on and it gets even more appalling. But, you know, when uh, Deborah, the nurse, said that FDA doesn't have any clinical trials, what she was indicating is that phase three trials were. Um, uh, unblinded very early on and the control group offered the vaccine and so in essence we will never have completed phase three trials and she is right that anybody getting it now is part of a um a really shoddily run um not properly tracked uh, phase three trial and um and her concerns you can hear how concerned she she is there in the hospital. See, no critical thinking. Nobody is allowed to question. And, and Javier, I'm, you know, the gift of COVID is that this, what is happening in that hospital system is not unique to COVID. So you can go to any medical situation and have the same frustration happen where a physician wants to treat a patient one way based on good evidence, but they're told, oh, but standard of care is we do it this other way. And, you know, we don't want to get in trouble. And right. So it, there is just this whole systemic problem with the entire medical system that does not allow for actual the practice of medicine for critical thinking and god forbid um pushing back against um dictates coming from on high what do you think well that that's very much the case um one when you are a licensed professional in any of the states where you practice uh medicine uh, as a as a physician or a, or a nurse or as a technician um, you have an obligation uh, to treat your patient as you see is in the best interest of your patient. Um, and thankfully, we've also developed the, uh, the didactic where patient and uh, a physician or a health practitioner work collaboratively to find a solution. And what's happening is that hospitals are basically taking a, um, uh, a list of um, 
requests or um, recommendations uh, from agencies that are outside of, uh, of the jurisdiction that they work in and mandating it to be followed to the letter. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last time I checked, uh, the practitioner that is working within the hospital is licensed to work in the state. The hospital does not have the right or duty to do that. And that includes for nurses as well. So what amazes me is the amount of, um, uh, of authority that these individuals have given up in their practice and treatment of patients and basically saying we're just following what the hospital tells us to do. It, it sounds, unfortunately, uh, you know, this is a sort, like you said, it's a sign that it's a, it's a same side of, um, of uh, thinking that, that has gotten many countries and many organizations in trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it's good people. The nurses and doctors, for the most part, are they're fabulous people really want to help their patients, but they're caught up in this system. And even, you know, the individuals that go on to push back against this nurse, they're good people, too you know, caught up in a system that doesn't allow them to, to think critically, to, right. to look at the information, to honestly say, gosh, within our system, we're seeing more harm than good from these vaccine products. Right. They, they don't feel they have that power. I believe they actually do, they you know, do. and they just have no, they've never done it before. And, and um, Javier, that's, all of America right now is waking up, realizing that everybody's so afraid that they, they have to come, I'll get in trouble, I'll get in trouble. I can't do that. But America was created because we wanted a land where when authority got out of control, we had the freedom and to stand up and say no, exactly. no, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, we not only have that um, that power, but we have that duty. I've heard this said, heard said, and I think even Del Bigtree repeated this on that particular program, but part of being an American and protecting your freedom means you have a duty when authority is doing something you know to be wrong. You need to stand up. You do it peacefully, right? Well, but, yeah. Yeah. but there has to be um, non-compliance with unjust regulations. Um, and, and so like this every day, the systemic problems that allowed all of this to happen are being revealed. And, right. Yeah. Um, so do you have anything more um, to say to that before we move a little bit forward? Well, no, uh, just a very briefly, uh, one of, uh, Kennedy uh, gave a speech in South Africa once in 1962, where uh, a quote of his is often used, you know, moral courage is rarer than, um, than, uh, than uh, courage in, in combat. And that is something that um, people really need to dig up against, because when you have something that, uh, you know, is not a, a present danger, or you're not having to make a split decision, but where you have to agonize about the right course of action, it's very difficult especially when you have so many people that are unwilling or in some cases uh, unable to, to make that decision and support you. You have a lot of people that are against you. And, you know, over here uh, in, in my state uh, and in my condition, a lot of people, you know, basically have either shunned me or are not talking to me or are actively saying I'm, I'm lying and disseminating misinformation. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I'm looking at the I'm looking at the uh, primary data 
and I'm not listening to whatever newscast is saying or whatever headline is being blared out, which mm-hmm. when you actually read the, a lot of the newspapers and a lot of the articles, when you start getting to the details and you start reading the facts, they absolutely contradict a lot of news articles, headlines. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, the only thing I can say is that there is a great deal of bias uh, that is trying to push an agenda that is uh, unfortunately not reflecting the reality that we're seeing in reporting systems. Right. Yeah. And, you know, systemically, this has been the problem pre-COVID leading till now. We have we have the bulk of our media, our major, what do they call that, legacy media? Legacy media, yeah. Is owned and controlled by just a handful of powerful companies um, sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry, like 70% of the revenue comes from the pharmaceutical industry. And so the information is coming from certain sources, various sources coming off the newswire and nobody's vetting. You've got, you've got nobody looking it up, nobody challenging what the government is saying. I mean, when has that ever gone well? When your media is not challenging the information coming from the government, they're supposed to be like our watchdogs for goodness sake. And nobody's challenging and looking to see, well, that's not actually news. That's actually, um, like, uh, uh, propaganda or an ad disguised as news, but you know, they just, they just put it out there. And then you get in these conversations with people who are smart college graduates, what have you, they're repeating the surface, right? They're repeating the headlines. They're repeating things they heard in the article. They have never gone and actually vetted it. If you can get anybody to pause a minute and do like you and I do and go read to see, does the citation back up the statement? That has not happened for years, right? Yeah. And what's what's even more critical is that even the directors and people in authority uh, are contradicting the recommendations of a lot of their advisors. Yeah. So that is another thing that needs to be uh, brought to, to the forefront. Uh, like, for example, the CDC director, uh, Walensky, overrode oh. the FDA's committee uh, that said, you know, they basically voted against requiring a booster shot. They just said yeah. this isn't there for it, and we don't recommend it at this time. And the F and Walensky basically said, "Nope, we're going to go forward." It, it, not just for certain individuals, but for is she are they pushing it for everybody? They're pushing it for eighteen and uh, and older. Oh, good heavens! You know, anytime, anytime, any powerful entity such as our government is pushing something in the face of evidence to the contrary, showing that the goals that they say they are wanting to achieve when the evidence shows, their evidence shows that this will not get their goal. Like, you know, these vaccines do not prevent infection, transmission, hospitalization, or death. You cannot achieve your goals this way. Um, You've got to think there's something else you know, going on here. And what, what the heck is going on here is what we've been talking about for a year and a half, but we're not alone millions and millions. And before I forget, and then I want to move on to, you've got some good clips that you're going to be playing for us, but I want to tell Washington state listeners that on October 3rd at the U S the, the Washington state Capitol in Olympia, October 3rd, from one to 4 PM, there's going to be a big, huge event. And we want every person who stands for medical freedom and informed consent to show up. 
we want mass numbers there. So October 3rd, 1 to 4 p.m. And you can find details at hazardousliberty.com hazardousliberty.com. There's great guest speakers. There's going to be representatives. There's going to be um, celebrities. There'll be food trucks, music. It's going to be amazing. Um, brought to you by Hazardous Liberties and lots of other folks. And uh, we'll do our best for Informed Twist Washington to have a booth there to provide information. But let's show up. Let's get all of Washington showing up on October 3rd. Um, yeah, so very exciting. So, um, so Javier, then there was, tell us about the FDA meeting that recently took place. So the FDA convened uh, the 167th uh, uh, review board uh, for vaccines. Um, and basically this was uh, where Pfizer presented their data to the FDA committee. Now, again, F what the FDA uh, is basing a lot of their data on is the clinical trials that Pfizer has been running and using that information to make the decisions on. And that is unfortunate because it's not the totality of all the information. Right now we have one of the largest um, uh, clinical trials in human history ongoing right now, where we're injecting people with three different vaccines that have not gone through the rigorous review process that is required and mandated. It's all under EUA. And now they they quote approved it uh, based on just you know less than six months of data. Well, six months of data, very few animal trials, very few, almost no teratological, reproductive, or developmental animal data. And now they're actually they have five ongoing trials that the FDA required as a post marketing um, analysis uh, to look at things like myocarditis and pericarditis. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the ability to, to uh, become pregnant, maintain a pregnancy, mm -hmm. uh, cancer. These are now ongoing. These were not required before. So this is, this is not me being a, a conspiracy theorist of any sort. You can actually go and read through the FDA documentation that shows that they're now requiring it, but they're now doing it. Well, that's putting the cart before the horse. But um, this, is, this is what happened. This is what the FDA convened. And I'll, I'll get to the punchline here real quick. 18 out of two, uh, 18 to two voted against uh, 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 approving the, the booster shot uh, here. But the, more importantly, they, uh, they allowed for a, or they're required by law to have an open public comment section. And the people that presented uh, their information to the FDA committee where I would have to say uh, a very impressive and well-credentialed and qualified individuals uh, that could come up and um, and uh, present their case. So if I could show, if I could take control of the screen and- um, Yeah, definitely go for it. And while you do that, I'll just have to say that it was really alarming that the FDA, when they voted whether or not to give full licensure to the Pfizer product, they opted to not do it publicly and to not have public comment at that time. I'm wondering if they broke any, um, laws or regulations there but now after the fact with this booster they are um back to playing the game anyway of allowing us to have a voice exactly so here i'm going to go i'm going to make this full screen uh, this is um i believe it's going to be dr doshi on okay. here so here we go okay 
Thank you, Dr. Freeman. The next speaker is Mr. Steve Kirsch. Oh, sorry, Steve Kirsch. Hi, I'm Steve Kirsch. I'm executive director of the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund. I have no conflicts. Uh, advanced to slide number four with the elephant. I'm going to focus my remarks today on the elephant in the room that nobody likes to talk about, that the vaccines kill more people than they save. Today, we focus almost exclusively on COVID death saves and vaccine efficacy because we were led to believe that vaccines are perfectly safe. But this is simply not true. For example, there were four times as many heart attacks in the treatment group in the Pfizer six-month trial report. That wasn't bad luck. Theirs shows heart attacks happen 71 times more often following these vaccines compared to any other vaccine. In all, 20 people died who got the drug, 14 died who got the placebo. Few people noticed that. If the net all-cause mortality from the vaccines is negative, vaccines, boosters, and mandates are all nonsensical. This is the case today. Death rates, um, uh, let's slide number seven, advance uh, to the number seven in the lower part. This shows that the all-cause uh, death light rate in, uh, uh, in three cases, only the VAERS numbers are statistically significant, but the other numbers are troubling. Even if the vaccines had 100% protection, it still means we kill two people to save one life. Four experts did analyses using completely different non-US data sources, and all of them came up with approximately the same number of excess vaccine-related deaths, about 411 deaths per million doses. That translates into 150,000 people have died. Next slide will be slide number 11, uh, the nursing home. Now, the real numbers confirm that we kill more than we save. And I, will, uh, I would love everyone to look at the Israel Ministry of Health data on the 90-plus-year-olds where we went to, we went from a 94.4% uh, vaccinated group to 82.9% vaccinated in the last four months. In the most optimistic scenario, it means that 50% of the vaccinated people died and 0% of unvaccinated people died. Unless you can explain that to the American public, you cannot approve the boosters. Slide number 16, please, myocarditis. Uh, the paper just posted yesterday on MedArchive entitled mRNA COVID-19 Vaccination and Development of CMR Confirmed Myopericarditis shows that the myopericarditis risk was one in a thousand and that's an overall age range from 16, 18 to 65, mean age of 33. It is not inconsistent with what the bear shows. Next slide would be slide number 18, gaming of the trials. It's pretty clear that the Pfizer trial results were gained. It's statistically impossible for protocol violations to be five times higher in the treatment group. Why hasn't this been investigated? Slide number 19. Uh, Maddie DeGray was, was 12 when she enrolled in the Pfizer phase three trial for kids. Now she's paralyzed for life. It wasn't recorded by, in the uh, Pfizer results. I told Janet Woodcock, there was no investigation. Please tell us why this, was not, why this fraud was not investigated. And finally, um, slide number 20, please. Um, early treatments are a much better alternative to boosters. Uh, the proof is that in Israel, Cases are at an all-time high. In India, Uttar Pradesh is now COVID-19 free as of today. Almost nobody there is vaccinated. Thank you. Wow. I'm gonna pause it right there. So that was Steve Kirsch. He started a, a group um, to basically look over and investigate the data that was coming through 
Uh, he's an MIT uh, graduate and engineer, uh, master's degree in, um, in electrical engineering. Uh, he's worked, uh, he was actually part of the development team as, a, as an undergraduate for ARPANET. So he was one of the early adopters uh, and also one of the early uh, developers of the internet and internet software tools. Uh, so he, he basically translated his, uh, his engineering know-how into seven to eight different uh, startup companies that have spun off. Uh, and he took it upon himself to recruit uh, the best and the brightest that he could to basically do the deep dive analysis. Wow, and extremely qualified to know how to look at data Correct. Um, accurately. That, that's something that I struggle with. The numbers kind of get tangled in my brain. I'm so grateful. And I'm grateful people like you who also are really good at it because we need we need to vet each other. We need to explore even people who are giving the messages that we feel are accurate and we support. We right. need to always even be checking theirs. It's one of the things I love about sort of the people in our movement is we work hard to check each other's math as it were <laughs> you know to keep everything um as as honest and accurate oh and i love dr jessica rose yeah i had her on the show i gotta have her on again so i'm gonna this is what she reported uh to the fda at the committee meeting so i'm just gonna get the i'm gonna play this right now if you don't mind yes the computational biologist I've taken it upon myself to become a VAERS analyst to organize the data into comprehensive figures to convey information to the public in both published work and video mediums. Safety and efficacy are the cornerstones of the development and administration of biological products meant for human use. Risk is a measure of the probability of an adverse event occurring and the severity of the resultant harm to health of individuals in a defined population. Safety is a judgment of the accessibility of this risk in a specified situation. Efficacy is the probability of benefit to individuals in a defined population from a medical technology. Refer to slide one. This is a bar plot that shows the past 10 years of various data plotted against the total number of adverse event reports for all vaccines for the years 2011 through 2020 and for COVID-associated products only for 2021. The left bar plot represents all adverse event reports, and the right bar plot represents all death adverse event reports. Hey, Javier, pause a moment. Yes. So for those who are only listening on the radio, would you explain that graph? Ah, my apologies. You're absolutely correct. So <laughs> Jessica, Dr. Rose is, is um, displaying is a, a graph of, uh, of the data from VAERS uh, that goes from 2011 to 2021. And she's basically the two graphs show uh, uh, very small graphs of uh, VAERS uh, uh, adverse events, uh, you know, roughly averaging 25 to 38,000 reported events uh, for all adverse events. And then you get all the way up to 2020, 2020 and then you get to 2021, and it, it jumps to 521,000 adverse events. So a, a a 12 to 14 fold difference uh, from previous years. And then on the right, on the on the right side of the graph, you have the total bears reported deaths per year. And it's roughly averaging, you know, 120 to 170 deaths from 2011 to 2020. And then you get to 2021, and then it jumps to 7,662. 
Wow, that's huge. And that that's the deaths in the United States pulled out of the VAERS data. Correct. If you look at, at all of the deaths, which include international deaths reported following vaccination, right. I think we're up to like 15,000. Correct. But in this case, they're just looking at, at, at U.S. deaths. US. And I think that she, uh, for, for her purposes in the presentation, she's just focusing on continental United States. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to get going. In the total number of adverse events for 2021, and we are not done with 2021. This is highly anomalous on both fronts. These increased reporting rates are not due to increased rates in injections and not due to simulated reporting. This has been shown using a comparative analysis of influenza data. The onus is on the public health officials, the FDA, the CDC, and policymakers to answer to these anomalies and acknowledge the clear risk signals emerging from their data and to confront the issue of COVID-injectable product use risks that, in my opinion, outweigh any potential benefit associated with these products, especially for children. Slide two. This is a time series plot that shows the total cumulative number of cardiovascular, immunological, and neurological adverse events for 2021 associated with COVID products. When the cumulative absolute counts are no And here, uh, what she's doing is she's displaying a graph that uh, bears adverse events per million fully vaxxed that goes from February 2021 to September 2021. And those numbers just are climbing at a, at a pretty alarming rate mm -hmm. uh, and they're really outside the the norm from all of the reporting years uh, related to uh, any and all vaccines uh, previously to the either Pfizer Moderna or or Johnson and Johnson uh, okay. vaccines so uh, I mean normalized for the total number of fully injected individuals in the US we can see that one in 660 individuals are succumbing to and reporting immunological adverse events associated with the COVID product. The underreporting factor is not considered here. Slide three. This is a phylogenetic tree showing the emergence of the. And I'll just stop it right here. Basically, okay. she's speculating as to what, why are we seeing such a rapid evolution in uh, in the variants associated with uh, with SARS-CoV-2. And her contention is that, and the contention of many virologists, is that because we're actually uh, uh, providing these, uh, these vaccines, it's driving the accelerated evolution uh, of, these, of these variants. And again, she should know she's a virologist by training, right. a computational biologist by training as well. So she knows these, these mechanisms. And I have one last one okay. uh, to share. And okay. I have the right one. Yeah, as you grab that, I'll just comment that we we've heard for more than a year from other virologists, the same thing was predicted, that if you vaccinate under heavy pressure, you're going to have these things emerge. Exactly. And this is going to be Peter Doshi. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mr. Kubitsch. The next speaker is Dr. Peter Doshi. Hi, I'm Peter Doshi, and thanks for the opportunity to speak. Hopefully you can see my title slide with my financial disclosure. For identification purposes, I'm on the faculty of the University of Maryland and an editor at the BMJ. I have no relevant conflicts of interest. Our next slide, please, which is labeled slide A. I want to start off by asking a question. Just what problem is this third dose aiming to solve? If we have a pandemic of the unvaccinated, as our public health officials have repeatedly stated, 
why would a, quote, fully vaccinated person need a third dose? Next slide B, please. The briefing document suggests the rationale for boosters is waning immunity, but the lowest vaccine efficacy figure mentioned is 87, 83.7%. And last month, FDA approved Pfizer's vaccine stating that efficacy against symptomatic COVID is 91%. Sure, a third dose might nudge up efficacy numbers, but so too might a fourth dose and a fifth dose. The thing is, the two-dose regimen efficacy numbers are already way higher than the 50% bar that FDA set in June last year for an approvable vaccine. Mm -hmm. Before contemplating the licensure of dose three, shouldn't FDA first require evidence that the two-dose regimen no longer meets the efficacy bar the agency just weeks ago said it met? If vaccine efficacy is now below 50%, let's see the data. Next slide C, please. Let's discuss safety. When discussions about a third dose began in July, CDC Deputy Director Dr. Jay Butler said it was vital to find out if the third dose increased adverse reactions, particularly severe ones. Unfortunately, we're still in the dark. Pfizer's booster application reports on just 329 people with no control data. Now there is a Pfizer ongoing placebo-controlled randomized trial of boosters in 10,000 people not discussed in the briefing document but this trial is unlikely to satisfactorily characterize booster safety. First, the trial is too small and the enrollment limited to healthy participants. Second, we really need to know how safe boosters are in people who already had bad reactions to dose one or two, but such people are obviously less likely to volunteer to participate in this trial. So we won't have the data to answer the question. Yet if the booster is approved, such people will surely be mandated to receive a third. Uh, dose. Final slide D, please. I'll end with a question. Last week, three medical licensing boards said that they could revoke doctors' medical licenses for providing COVID vaccine misinformation. I'm worried about the chilling effect here. There are clearly many remaining unknowns, and science is all about probing unknowns. But in the present supercharged climate, and I'll point out that multiple members of this committee are certified by these boards, I want to ask FDA, what is FDA doing to ensure that those advising it are able to speak freely without fear of reprisal? Thank you for your attention. And wow. so that's, I mean, that was the, Peter Doshi succinctly putting it, basically, where, where is all this pressure coming from? And why are doctors being threatened uh, when, they, when they practice uh, the art and science of medicine? With their mm -hmm. patient? Yeah, do you want to um, go ahead and unshare the there? Beautiful. Um, exactly. And I'm, I'm so proud of him for standing up for for doctors. It's it's absurd here in Washington State, Javier. I um, there's an email message that has gone out to pharmacists that tell them the FDA has not approved ivermectin, that they there's no evidence is safe and effective, which is absolute nonsense. We know that there is plenty of global evidence and then yet one more country has now made it standard of care. Exactly. Um, but they told them that the pharmacists that they you really should fill at their own discretion, but the way it's worded is very intimidating. Yes. And they say, if you are concerned about a prescriber for any COVID treatments, it might be a good idea to report that physician to their licensing board. So they're trying to get pharmacists to not prescribe and to turn in. It, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And yet, I don't understand 
Well, I guess I do. You know, obviously I do. It's all about money and corporate capture and all of that. But we're in this absurd situation where our public health agencies, without the authority um, really to do so, are going around intimidating and stopping the use of life-saving, Nobel Prize-winning, um, easily accessible should be um, drugs that have been shown to, you know, uh, bind to the spike protein, prevent severe disease, prevent infection. How they can do this and also be pr- promoting experimental products with no liability. I mean, how the heck did we get here, Javier, where this is our taxpayer dollars and a lot of Gates Foundation money? Um, doing this in Washington state, this, this has got to stop. It it has to. And one thing that, uh, is becoming quite apparent is that this has been, uh, uh, I wouldn't say an overreach, but it's basically we provided as, uh, you know, our legislators and us by, by extension have provided the tools for government officials to, to basically take this power onto themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, again, you know, this this was supposed to be a short-term emergency measure, 14 days to flatten the curve, and then, well, one month to save the hospitals. And then it's it's turned into 18 months, uh, now almost 19 months of unending uh, uh, pressure to uh, take an experimental, and it's still experimental. Um, you know, that's my opinion. These are still experimental uh, injections uh, mm-hmm. that were rushed, are rushed, and again, you know, I've, I've heard both sides of this, you know, Operation Warp Speed was started by, uh, by President Trump and was continued under President Biden. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, where, well, yeah. where you stand on the political spectrum, uh, you know, it's being pushed by both, uh, by both members of the party. And you've got so many people pushing, um, the people who are supposed to be protecting facts, protecting citizens, um, consumer protection right. are are absolutely failing in their duty. And we have we have public health departments like the Department of Health saying, well, we called it, you know, warp speed, but it really wasn't warp speed. We just did all of the components at the same time. Well, that's absolute BS. You cannot, you didn't have a time machine. You cannot go look for adverse reactions that aren't going to start for six months, a year, three years down the road if that time hasn't passed. You can't know about um, infertility and cancer and autoimmune diseases unless you've actually done the studies looking for cancer and infertility and autoimmune diseases. You know, they just lie to the public, saturating the public with misinformation. That's, I mean, we have got to figure out a way to make it illegal for our government to lie to us. There's some kind of act. I forget what it's called. The Mund something. The Smith-Munt Act. Oh, bless your heart for knowing that. Okay. 2012. Can Can you talk about that? So I haven't read it. So I'm, I'm basically going off of third-hand information, but it's third-hand information from uh, sources that I trust that allowed for the federal government to fund organizations and to provide monies uh, to organizations that could uh, be untruthful to the American public. In essence, it was uh, allowing uh, certain agencies and private contractors to spread misinformation and lies. Now, you have to read it. You have to interpret it. It d- d- doesn't say that's uh, in the Smith-Munt Act directly, yeah. but that's the interpretation and provides protection. 
Right. I read it just uh, a little bit skimmed over it. I wanted to go into it more deeply. The way I saw it was, you know, like at, at times of war, sometimes countries will spread misinformation in a country that they're at war against in order to mislead them so they could achieve their, their goal against the enemy as it were. And, you know, there was like, um, you know, different radio stations during World War II such that would put stuff out there, you know, so, hey, guys, look over here, but they were really over here right. type of thing, right? And what that act does would make it so that that information supposedly aimed at foreign enemies could be overheard by Americans who would also be misled by it. Correct. So, you know, I suppose if you have an, an agency in the United States who wants to mislead other nations, who want to take advantage of the fact that it will also lead, mislead their own citizens, that is what's happening. That's kind of how I'm seeing it. You know, uh, that that may be the case. I don't have any information. Uh, there's never what's the word is it never ascribed to malevolence, but you can ascribe to incompetence. Yeah, that's true. Well, we we I've tried to to get an attorney, a county prosecutor, somebody to take action against our Department of Health for breaking fraud laws in Washington state. That, because that is actually quite legal. You're absolutely correct. Yeah. So we just need somebody, everybody's so busy fighting all these other fronts, but, you know, we could really end a lot of this nonsense if our department of health was not allowed to put out false statements. You know, right. I, I did, you know, it's hard to keep on top of everything. I, I did get them department of health to take down one message from their Facebook page about yes. Bell's palsy. Um, I just sent them the study and the clinical trial because they had posted that, you know, don't trust misinformation. These actually, they said this shot, what do you mean this shot? There's three brands. Anyway, right. they said this shot doesn't, doesn't cause Bell's palsy. And I sent them proof otherwise. And so they took it down. Um, you know, we need to just, I guess, start be, doing more of that, but they shouldn't be able to do that. They're supposed to be on our side. And I tell you, if we get the media back, Javier. If we get, if we can get the media to do their due diligence, investigative journalism, you know, well, in a way we are, we're sort of starting our own yeah. news sources. And, and as more and more people turn to what's called alternative and we become the legacy, you know, and the other people become the alternative, then, um, and I hate, I hate that alternative. Mm -hmm. they, they say that like herbalism is alternative medicine. No, it's the original medicine. Exactly. <laughs> the drugs it, are the alternative. <laughs> the one thing we do have to keep, uh, keep in mind is that, uh, you know, the job of the departments of health are there to provide accurate information so that you can make an informed choice. And what yeah. shocked me was they were promoting a vaccine in which there was already enough information on pericarditis and myocarditis and young people, and they kept on saying, no, nothing to worry about. It's all safe and good. And they kept on saying it until they, until overwhelming amounts of evidence came up saying that, well, we need to put a black box label on, yeah. some, of these, on some of these products. Yeah. So the Department of Health is not there to promote a product. They're there to act in the best interest of public health. And that is prima facie evidence that they're not doing that. And I, I hate to say that. 
I know that there's good yeah. in the Department of Health. Right. I hate to say that, but that is now prima facie evidence that they're not need, doing their job. We need, and, and we're just about ready to go to the break, but we need to defund the marketing department of the Department of Health. They yeah. should they should not have any marketers. They should not be able to hire these major marketing firms. But that's what they do to put the message out because their goal is vaccine high vaccine uptake, and that's it. And you know, so much left to do. Okay, I'm going to wrap up, Javier. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we have the wonderful Dr. Henry Ely coming on board to talk about treatments. You've been listening to an Inform Life Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lynn Redwood, president of the nonprofit Children's Health Defense. Our chairman, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., and our entire team are devoted to ending the epidemic of illnesses and disorders plaguing our children today. Through legal action, we're working to hold industries and government agencies accountable and to establish safeguards to prevent further harm. We're working overtime during this COVID-19 crisis to keep you informed about the politics and science of rush vaccine candidates. Freedom and our children's futures have never been more in jeopardy. But we can succeed. With your help, we can stop the devastation and give our children and grandchildren the healthy future they deserve. To learn more about what we're doing and how you can help, visit childrenshealthdefense.org and sign up for our free news. Please visit childrenshealthdefense.org today. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.
Welcome back to an informed life radio at 1150 AM KKNW. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. For those of you watching this streaming or video, no, you can't see me right now. I'm in some place with, without uh, good access to that video streaming. So you're just going to hear my voice, but you're going to see two handsome gentlemen very soon here. I've got co-hosting today, Javier Figueroa. Say hi, Javier. Hello, world. <laughs> PhD in neurobiology. I, he's, we're going to be doing some things together. You know, you've got Bernadette, amateur researcher, pointing you to the experts. And then he's going to be uh, kind of my expert scientist there, um, adding his wonderful insights from that academic and scientific perspective. And then we're coming, uh, bringing on the show today, somebody our regular listeners know and love, Dr. Henry Ely, who we call called Dr. H. Hi, Dr. H. Hey, Bernadette. Hi, Javier. It's good to be here. Thank you so <laughs> yeah. much for having me again. So, you know, you've got an extensive background. You're just, you know, I always call you my Renaissance guy because you're all over the place of what you do. And not only, you know, do you know um, science and, and healing and medicine, but you come at it from that place of very human compassion and spirituality, you know, that health is more than just, you know, the physical side of things. And so I respect you so much for that. Oh, thank you so much. That's super kind. I really appreciate that. So we got a lot to cover today. There's a couple of great subjects we're going to, we're going to cover. We're going to go over um, the grand jury investigation. We're going to mm -hmm. go over something called COVID con look mm -hmm. out for that. I'm really excited about that, but let's start today's episode with telling folks about some treatment protocols. We are not giving medical advice on this show or legal advice, but we're going to pass on some information that you can look into. And then you're going to go to your trusted healthcare practitioner. And by the way, if you do not currently have a trusted healthcare practitioner who knows how to treat COVID to keep you out of the hospital, you go after this show, you go searching now and you search like you're looking for a spouse that you're going to spend the rest <laughs> of your life with. It's that important because when you, when you wake up with a fever, it's too late to find a doctor. It's too late to find, to, to have in your medicine cabinet, all of those protocols you need to keep you out of the hospital. Okay. Now Bernadette's getting tough. I've been saying this for a year and a half and I'm just starting to get really tough about how I say this. Um, so we're going to talk about as things evolve, all our wonderful practitioners, including uh, Dr. H has been researching and, and looking at all the things everybody is trying. And so again, not medical advice, but he's going to be passing on to you some of the things he's been learning about COVID. So you take it away there, Dr. H. Amen. And, and Bernadette, I have to read this statement. It's such a hostile environment uh, right now for all of us. I, I have to add more on, on to that. Okay. I just had a graduate actually um, who had a website up. She does, she's, she's an herbalist, certified herbalist. She's been doing all kinds of uh, great work in creating tinctures and, and remedies and things like that. And she had a completely innocuous statement on her website saying, you know, that um, this this particular herb and series of herbs is what I use for uh, antiviral properties. And, and she made one little hiccup, she said, and because COVID is caused by a virus. Yeah. And and the that was enough for the Federal Trade Commission to send her a to evaluate all of her social media, 
all of her website and find a number of instances where they said she was being deceptive and, and, and threatened her that if she didn't take everything down within 48 hours, they were going to fine her $44,000 for each instance of it. Okay. So I have to say this, um, uh, all information that I share is public domain and for educational purposes, information can be shared freely with the understanding that all statements have been, have not been evaluated by the U S food and drug administration, the FDA. You can go to the FDA site to, um, check out their position on various therapeutic interventions. Some of which we mentioned here, uh, we are, I am required to inform you that, uh, any information presented, on this show um, is not intended to advise, diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease, including COVID. We, I am required to uh, inform you that any information presented on this show um, are, is not intended to constitute legal advice either. Um, so always consult with qualified licensed medical professionals and legal experts before enacting any information presented herein. You are in charge of your health. You are in charge of your freedom. Make sure, please, that you do your due diligence and verify what we are saying, that you read the research, that you consult with people you trust, and that you make informed decisions, just like Bernadette has been advocating for since the advent of this show. All right. So with that being said, and hopefully we're all on the same page, and hopefully the FDA and the FTC don't want to come after me or you for <laughs> saying something. So, um, I think it's very important to, to note, and I have this on the covidcon21.com uh, website, which uh, shows that we've been at this, Bernadette, since really April of last year, um, March, April of last year of 2020. We've been banging the drum for the inclusion of, of peer-reviewed evidence-based nutritional strategies that began emerging out of the Wuhan epicenter, actually, uh, thanks to Dr. Cheng uh, in 2020, in February of 2020. February of 2020, Dr. Cheng, who is a world-renowned doctor, uh, took 50 uh, moderate to severe cases of COVID in the Wuhan epicenter and administered only IV, high-dose IV nutrient therapy, what, what we might consider to be a Myers cocktail here in the United States. He administered that, and he had all 50 patients recover, and they recovered on average three to five days before the patients who were able to recover using standard of care treatment at that time, which of course included ventilation and some other things that they were exploring in China. He did a video on YouTube at sharing this information with the world, telling the world, you don't have to be worried. We, we can treat this and so forth. And of course, YouTube censored the video and deplatformed him. And that's when I knew we had some problems going on. So what we started doing was culling all of the scientific literature that we could find to really investigate, well, what is, what's being said about vitamin D? What's being said about ivermectin? What's being said about hydroxychloroquine? And is it matching what is they're telling us in the media? And it was, they're very different. When you read the scientific literature, the efficacy and the safety is beyond debate. But when you go to the mainstream media, what you get is a narrative of fear that is trying to make people, in my opinion, be very scared and they don't sync up. So one place that people can go to uh, for information is uh, C19, the letter C with the one nine early.com. I think this website, this group of individuals doing the best job I've seen out there collecting all of the pertinent science 
that's out there, the peer-reviewed studies, the randomized clinical trials, and analyzing them so that you can get a really firm understanding on where the safety and efficacy is for all of these treatments from vitamin D and vitamin C all the way through to ivermectin and fluvoxamine now and budesonide. And, you know, they're just doing a really wonderful job of it. And we've actually linked back to them. So um, on through the COVIDCon site. So what I did was I put together on the COVIDCon uh, 21 site, I put together a section on prevention. And I'm now I'm concerned about even using that word. How, how crazy is that? I'm trying to help people and I'm scared about whether I can use a word like prevention. So what we've started talking about is we have strategies on here for immune priming. And we give the rationale with tons of references as to why we are advocating for this. What people have heard me say before who've, who are um, regular listeners to your show is that 65 to 95 percent of Americans are deficient in vitamin D. This is according to the CDC's 2016 inhane studies. Uh, and then we start looking at the other uh, key immunological nutrients, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin C, vitamin A, and zinc. And we see that the CDC has known for decades that Americans are severely deficient in these nutrients. And when we're deficient in these nutrients, the immune system is going to have a really difficult time dealing with any infection, let alone an infection that's never been exposed to before. So one of the things that we're getting um, and educating on right now is, the, is, is really simple. You cannot inject immunity into people. That's not how the body works. That's not how any of this works. You cannot take a capsule of something and be immune. That's not how any of it works. What makes a human being immune from something is the immune system that already lives within them, okay? What makes someone immune to something is how their body, how their body's immune system responds to an antigen, something that is not self, something that is antigen, antigenesis, meaning anti-life. Your immune system is really, really simple-minded. It's e either when it comes across something, it's either self or it's not self. It's that simple. It's very black and white. There's no gray really for the immune system. So people say, well, there's a gray area with autoimmunity. No, it's not. The immune system is still working correctly in almost every instance. What it's identified though is your cells are not identified as self anymore. And that can be from chemical body burden. That can be from um, uh, post infections and changes to DNA and, and the cell surface identifying protein and all of that but your immune system is still working correctly. It's saying what's self and what's not self. That's all it cares about. When it finds things that aren't self, especially circulating in the bloodstream, a macrophage typically, or an antigen presenting cell is going to engulf it, break it down and carry it back to your lymph nodes. Now for your audience, your lymph nodes are basically your classroom. That's where the immune system goes to school and it learns how to kill things and specifically two classes of immune cells, B cells and T cells. B cells are going to produce antibodies against something. T cells are going to be really like in many cases, especially the CA, CD8s are going to be drillers. They're going to drill in and kill things. I mean, they're, 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 I can't say the word I want to say, but they're BAs. They're BA baracuses of your immune system if you get that A-team re reference from the 80s, right? So once they figured out how to kill something, they start to replicate like crazy. 
And that's where your lymph nodes swell. You don't feel too good, but that's a great sign because it's telling us that the immune system has figured out how to kill the infecting agent. And now they're going to start circulating throughout the entire system, your body, and they're going to be on the prowl, the lookout for these things, and they're going to wipe them out. Once that process has concluded and they've eliminated, in this case, a virus, what they then, the B cells will transform from plasma cells into what's called memory cells so that they retain a memory of this infection. So when you become exposed in future exposures, you can wipe it out without even getting infected, really. It's like you become an inhospitable place for that infection. That's when you're immune, when you have antibodies and when you have T cells that are primed to handle anything that it comes across. So what's so important, and, and this is where we can now, and I, I set that up for, for two reasons, Bernadette. I want to talk about the scientific literature and kind of mechanism of action on, on immune priming for these nutrients. But I also want to talk really briefly on what we've seen in the peer-reviewed literature on reinfection rates, because it's very, very important. So when we look at immune priming, I'm going to give just a quick overview of this. When we have severe def nutrient deficiencies rampant in our culture, it means that the immune system is now not going to be able to work, to do its job in the way that it's supposed to do its job, okay? So with that in mind, it's very important that we understand what's going on um, with respect to that. So vitamin D is basically going to help coordinate the immune response, and it's going to stimulate antimicrobial peptides and cytokines and immune cells to proliferate, to say, hey, we got a problem here. Let's get every, everybody on the scene. Let's do this. Vitamin E is going to be an antioxidant that's going to help protect healthy cells and enhance the B and T cell response. It's going to make your immune system more efficient. Efficiency is key because efficiency means that the more rapidly your immune system responds to what's going on is the less likely the symptom presentation is going to um, get into a place where a person would need hospitalization or very advanced care. Vitamin C, again, another antioxidant. It's going to protect healthy cells, but it's also going to do something specific. It actually can kill viruses. We, have, we know this. Now, do we know it can, if it can kill SARS-CoV-2 or not? I haven't seen anything in the literature suggesting that, but it does play an instrumental role in increasing the sy systemic amount of interferon that your body makes. And that's a substance interferon your body makes in order to minimize antibody, excuse me, minimize antiviral replication. Vitamin A is going to coordinate the cellular response, and it's going to promote the proliferation, the replication of immune cells. And zinc is going to do something very important. It's going to increase the binding capacity and the lethality of the immune cells, and it's also going to block viral replication as well. So you put these things together and you got a special nutrient cocktail that primes your immune system. It doesn't prevent you from getting sick. It doesn't prevent you from getting disease, but it primes your immune system for an advanced, efficient response should you come in contact with something that's not supposed to be there. Now, when we add on a few additional nutrients, quercetin, and this is all, we back all this up on the site. We have all this cited. When you, back, when you add in quercetin, quercetin is going to help zinc be more effective. It's going to help get 
uh, zinc into the cells so it can do its job. When you look at the work of Dr. Sabine Hazen, um, who's doing incredible work on the microbiome, and she's found that the commonality among all um, patients or the patients she's evaluated with severe um, instances of, of COVID is that they have no bifidobacterium, no, none of that probiotic in their digestive tract. And she published, she's published a paper on this. It's a brilliant paper. And when we put all these things together and maybe augment it with a little multivitamin to drive energy production at the mitochondrial level, now we have a well thought out, well reasoned approach to how we can make, give a person the best chance when there's no guarantees. You know, the goal isn't to not be infected. The goal is to make sure that when you do come in contact with this, your body is able to expertly and rapidly respond to it such that it can develop immunity without the necessity for severe symptomatology or hospitalization or worse outcomes. So far, is that making sense, Bernadette? Am I, am I, I feel like I'm, I, I don't know if I'm making sense. Oh. Oh, absolute sense. This is brilliant. I, I love the comprehensive read of all of these things everybody's been talking about. I'm just um, hanging on every word. And I think Javier there is too. Um, really good information. I, I want to ask you about the bifidium, the, um, yeah, the, bacteria, bif the bifidobacterium. Yes. The, the bifidobacterium is something that we, we heard some people speculating on theoretically in 2020. And that was really good because we were like, yeah, that would make sense. If a person has had a, a lot of antibiotics in their life, their microbiome is disrupted. Of course, we know that's going to create a lot of problems and set them up for infections. We know that secondary infections following prolonged antibiotic rounds is a, is a well-documented event clinically. Yeah. So, so one of the things that we've seen some of the best doctors in the world doing is, is advising, okay, if I have to put a patient on antibiotics, I also put them on probiotics, a really great probiotic. And I have, and I actually have the probiotics go longer than the antibiotics. So if they're on a 10 day course for antibiotics, they'll be on a 20 day course of probiotics to, to make sure that we're not taking away something that the person needs in the effort of trying to eliminate the infectious bacteria, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And, and in fact, it's interesting. Um, I, I agree. And yet, if I could just kind of respectfully disagree just a little bit of about course. supplementation, only because of what I've heard Dr. Zach Bush discuss, mm -hmm. and he has pointed to some studies where supplementation, because it's just a handful of the strains that we need when they've, when they've done side by side with people who supplement after antibiotics be, versus people who don't, the people who don't supplement rebuild their biome faster. Now I'm just pulling this off the top of my head and I don't remember. This oh, study, sure. Sure. But, but there it's that whole replenishing um, and building and protecting of your, your biome is an um, ongoing science and it's fascinating. Um, so, you know, like, I, I don't know, I mean, is, is there a particular commercial, um, supplement available that has this specific strain that you're talking about? Yeah, most, most do. Um, it, it, but then it becomes the question of viability, you know, and, and, and okay. product quality and what, what the company does. I'm not going to mention any companies cause I'm not going to endorse any companies or anything, but I do have some favorites, you know? Um, but I, I also think it's, it's important for us, um, like, cause 
Zach, I've, I've heard some of his stuff that he's done. I've, and I've talked with Dr. Hazen about this and she really is completely down on all of this, the supplements out there. I've also seen the work of Natasha Trenev and uh, who was one of the, the first pioneers in uh, probiotics and things like that. And I've also talked to Dr. Nigel Plummer and we've talked to people at Doctors Data Laboratory where they process and they do a lot of work on the microbiome as mm -hmm. well. So the thing about microbiome is we're in our infancy and our understanding of it. We understand mm -hmm. it's essential and important, but we're in our infancy and understanding how to work within it. So you're going to get a really incredible a, a, a dearth of, of points of view. And I think yeah. that's good. I think, that's, mm -hmm. I, I think that creates conversation and it creates yeah. more exploration. And I think that's what we should be doing for COVID as well, is, yeah. is like it's okay to disagree about something give me some substance. Why, why do you disagree? You know, I've had people accuse me of being misleading. And when I asked them where, what did I say that was misleading? They can never tell me what I said that was misleading. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not being misleading. You just don't like what I'm saying. And that's okay. <laughs> it's okay to not like what I'm saying, but I, I'm just pointing you to the, this is peer reviewed empirical this is empirical evidence. If we can't, yeah. if we can't rely on empirical evidence, then we have, then science is dead. That's exactly. the whole point of science is to be able right. to say, I don't know. I'm going to yeah. ask a question and then I'm going to conduct a study to, that'll hopefully help me understand the answer. So we've had Bernadette, some people doing studies on reinfection rates, right? With COVID mm -hmm. reinfection rates within a nine month window. And that's a, that's a, that's a solid length of time to see, you know, how many, what percentage of people, the question being what percentage of people are being reinfected by COVID people who've recovered and have an established immunity. Now, remember immunity can't be injected. Immunity can't be taken in a capsule. It's something that comes from within, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this is a very uh, important question, especially with the new variants that have come up. And if you listen to the experts on that, it's because of vaccine pressure. You don't vaccinate at the height of a crisis. You vaccinate afterwards. You don't, you don't create new variants, you know, in the process. And this is uh, Geert Vanderbosch and, and people that are way beyond me. I mean, Robert Young, these are people way beyond me with this stuff. And I think what's really important is to look at, okay, what does the empirical evidence say? What percentage of people are getting reinfected in, in a nine-month stint, right? And we need, and I, and I don't want a projection model. Don't give me projection models. Give me actual enrolled participants. I'm tired of projection models. I won't use them at all. They've been nothing but wrong from day one since the first one came out from the Imperial College of London saying that 2.2 million Americans or 2.2 million people were gonna die in a 12 month. Get out of my face. You're, you're making stuff up. You're, you might as well pull out a dry erase board and write a number on there because you're guessing. That's all it is. There's too many assumptions. Data, data, data. I need data to form a, a responsible objective opinion, okay? empirical evidence. So we, we've pulled um, two studies. One was from Denmark. Um, and I've talked to Dr. Peter McCullough about this a lot. He doesn't like this study. I want everybody to know that. And, and Peter, let me tell you, is the top. All right. In terms of his acumen and everything, I have the utmost love and respect for Peter McCullough. Um, that guy is beyond reproach with what he says. He's, I, I don't know how he reads as much as he does and does everything that he does. Okay. Um, so he did, there's some things he doesn't like about the Denmark study, but I said, listen, the Denmark study had over 400,000 people in it. It's, it's been peer reviewed. Um, the reinfection rate, um, and the reason he doesn't like it is because he thinks the reinfection rate is too high. 
He thinks he didn't like some of the assumptions they made in it. And I agree with him on this. But even with all those assumptions, Bernadette, the reinfection rate in a nine-month period is 0.65%. Is to say that is statistically insignificant. All right. And he thought that was too high. And he and he and he was upset that because he thought that was too high in there. Yeah. And then and then um in that they did a little bit of extra digging and they found that what was the commonality among the people who were being reinfected? Already previously immunocompromised. Mm-hmm already advanced aged, already multiple pre-existing conditions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now what tool did they use to assess reinfection PCR, which we know is dramatically fought. So you see it. So Dr. McCullough has a huge argument. He's right about mm-hmm. that. It's, it's, it's a junk, it's junk science. And even with the junk science, the best that they could produce in terms of reinfection is 0.65%. Mm-hmm. Now, Kaiser Permanente just dropped one in August um, for, I think, 70,000 people in the study. Um, and, uh, and I think it was around their, their healthcare workers. So these are the people that are going to have the highest rate of exposure and everything like that as well. And, and, and I want to be clear with the audience. I haven't read everything. I don't have the ability to read everything. So maybe there's a study out there I missed. But my questions are really simple whenever I'm reading research now. Who funded the study and how many enrolled participants? Because if, if I see some, one of the vaccine manufacturers or the NIH or somebody funding the study, I'm done at this point. I'm done. You're not practicing science anymore. If I see that there's no enrolled participants, I have no use for that study. All right. So those are my first two factors. I go straight to the funding statement and I want to look at the conflicts of interest. That's where I start my investigation on all research. I do not cite research with conflicts of interest, even if it's in my favor for the argument I'm attempting to craft. I don't, I will not cite it because conflicts of interest are the exact problem with everything going on in our world right now, in my opinion. There mm-hmm. is a decided lack of scientific and political integrity and, and people are suffering for it and I won't be a part of it. Okay. Agreed. So, so um, I, the other study out of the Kaiser Permanente showed in a nine month period, 0.8% reinfection rate. <laughs> and, and, and they were very clear, this is suspected infection, reinfection rate. So this is not you, exactly, uh, Javier was like, what? Yeah. And I'm like, yes, suspected, right? So what that tells us, I think what it confirms for us is, is very important. Reinfection is not an issue, okay? That's a confirmation of good news that the immune system is working, even immune systems that are severely nutrient deficient, even people who have, are not being given any advantages, they're being diagnosed and then told to go home and sit home and wait. Are you kidding me? We don't, we don't do that in medicine. You get the whole purpose of testing is to open up your treatment pharmacopoeia. That's why we test to get to a definitive diagnosis. And then we know, okay, well, I, now I know what's wrong. Now I have an idea of how to treat it. But if, if what we're saying is we're going to test people and we don't even know that the test is accurate, but the person, let's say the person's symptomatic, Bernadette, I've had patients who I've worked with who got diagnosed at the hospital and were sent home after being diagnosed with pneumonia. They were sent home. 
That's, you that's, had a relative that that happened. I, I had a relative. This is saved his life. This is this is ridiculous. This yeah. is unconscionable. So, or they're they're sent home. It's even worse than just being sent home. Often they're being sent home and said, "Well, if you've got a fever and you're a little achy, go ahead and take Tylenol and ibuprofen right. and just alternate between the two. And both of those products crash your immune system. Uh, Tylenol, in particular, acetaminophen, depletes your body of glutathione, your body's master ant antioxidant. I love Bernadette. Don't you, Javier? I love her. She's she's all over. When you can start talking to me about glutathione, we are in love. I got heart eyes, jumped, hearts just jumping out of my eyes right now. Yeah, I, I love it. Okay. So, you know, I'm looking at the time because we got a lot here to fit in and I know sure. Javier hasn't jumped in there yet. He's nodding yeah. away at the audience. If you can't see his image, he's nodding away to everything he's hearing here. Really quick though. Um, when, when for the FLCCC and, and America's frontline doctors and others, one of the mm -hmm. key components in order to really have your best shot mm -hmm. of preventing severe disease is ivermectin, which is proving more and more difficult to get. We won't get into why. Mm -hmm. is, is there anything that you have seen in the literature or that other, others are promoting that is similar in its mechanism of action of helping with that spike protein in particular, because that seems to be the one doing the most sure, uh, damage. Sure. This is theoretical. And I want to, I want to reference back to the earlier disclaimer on this, mm -hmm. right? Um, because I, 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 I'm anticipating at some point in time, a, a state board coming after me, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm being too vocal, but I, I want to just continue. I, I, please understand we are not making any attempt to mislead any attempt to be deceptive in what we're saying, we are simply presenting peer-reviewed empirical evidence. That's it, okay? Um, what we've seen out of the UCSD Salk study um, is that they did, um, they did something very interesting. They showed that the spike protein was in itself enough to be injurious to the endothelial lining of the cardiovascular system. And that explains a lot of the myocarditis, explains a lot of the headaches, explains a lot of the weird symptoms people have been having post-inoculation mm -hmm. and people have been having post uh, during uh, COVID infections. I, I, I am 100% confident that I just recovered from COVID. I had some of the strangest symptoms I've ever felt from an infection before, right? Now, um, we have to understand what the mechanism of action. So what do, we, what do we want? We want, number one, to make sure that we're breaking down the and thinning the mucus that might be accumulating in the respiratory tract, if that's one of the symptoms. That's where liposomal glutathione uh, comes in and, and or N-acetylcysteine, N-acetylcysteine being a precursor for, for glutathione. Okay, they both thin mucus. They're both they're the the glutathione is an antioxidant, so it's going to pr uh, promote um, some positive effect upon the um, viral replication and limiting that, and, and and at least inhibiting it to some degree. So yeah, if I could just add real quick, yeah, um, and I, I need to get it prominent on the on our website, but Dr. Ted Fogarty, who's been on the show a few times, has got a CARES Act grant and worked with naturopaths and came up with a formula that I call Fogarty's formula. He's got a longer name for it, and he gives out the recipe. And it's the three amino acids that make up glutathione that you can buy in bulk. It's spirulina, 
yep. beet powder and lemon powder. And when you mix this up in, in certain proportions, and then you can just take like a quarter teaspoon at a time, it's pure mitochondrial energy. It, it supports glutathione production, fabulous stuff. Um, it's on our radio show page. If you just search for Fogarty, you might find it. But again, I need to put it more, more prominent there. So go on. So glutathione and N-acetylcysteine, which is one of the precursors to glutathione and what else? Right. And then we, and this is, would be in, in addition, Bernadette to the, the priming nutrients, you know, mm -hmm. we want to, we want to make sure. So then there's also um, L-arginine. L-arginine is going to be a precursor to nitric oxide. So it's going to dilate the blood vessels and it's going to promote oxygen delivery and prevent hypoxia, which we, is obviously very important. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we also are looking at um, serapeptase. Serapeptase is a enzyme uh, that we've used prominently over the last 20 plus years to deal with scar tissue in the body. Mm -hmm. But what I've seen clinically, and I, I can't prove this again, I've just seen this clinically, is that it seems to have a great effect upon breaking down the spike protein. I say that because it's, it, I've used it, it, it used it extensively in, um, in the several post-inoculation injury cases I've been really privileged to, to work with. And it seems to, the, the, my theory was it would break down the spike protein and it appears to have done that because we've had positive outcome in each of those okay. cases, okay? And then the last thing um, uh, would be um, the, let me pull this up right here. Yeah, and then the last thing that you're looking at for stuff like this is then that's the way you bring in the bifidobacterium. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, so when we're talking about a potential replacement for ivermectin, I can't say that there is one, all right? Mm -hmm. There is, we have nothing in the, in the literature that suggests there is one. Mm -hmm. But if we understand mechanism of action and what ivermectin is doing in the system, um, it, then we understand that ivermectin is supporting a healthy microbiome. That's where the bifidobacterium component comes in. Yeah. And we also understand that the ivermectin is inhibiting viral replication as well. And that's where you start looking at, well, what is going to inhibit viral replication? Vitamin A is going to do that. What is going to inhibit viral replication? Zinc in a big way. But as Dr. Zelenko has been really on the ball with, I love listening to that guy, um, is that we have to have a zinc ionophore to get the zinc into the cell so it can mm -hmm. participate in the inhibition of the viral replication. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be quercetin or right. green, green tea. So yeah. So what we're saying is, what, what I'm suggesting to people is that if we are the most important thing we can do as, as healthcare providers, as, as doctors, right? Doctors are supposed to be dossieres, to teach, right? The most important thing we can do as doctors is understand the mechanism of action. And if we understand the mechanism of action, the pharmacopoeia opens up and it opens up for a lot of people for the first time into the natural world, which is yeah. great for us, right? Um, and I think that's, to me, Bernadette, that's what we can do. And I, if I would, could give mm -hmm. any advice on all this is to get into deeply, especially if you're, if you want to honor your oath and you want to do the best job you can for your patients, doctor, nurse, doesn't matter. Get into the deep understanding of mechanism of action. And then you start seeing there's way more options out there, mm -hmm. potentially than you may have realized to begin with. So you don't have to be reliant on a, a one trick pony uh, like uh, 
ivermectin that they're making unavailable or yeah. hydroxychloroquine that's been politically vilified or or something like that you know um, right. I, I think it's unconscionable and i've seen the the pharmacist boards doing this and i and i i am upset about this great deal yeah i've seen uh, the pharmacist saying they will not they have the right to not fill a prescription for ivermectin and i say to that that is willful misconduct that is mm -hmm. dereliction of duty you mm -hmm. were not in that room with the doctor and the patient you do not have a right to overrule a doctor who has spent time with the patient if that's the case why don't you just why, why do we need doctors if doctors can be overruled when they're trying to help people in need and then what's the whole point of the patient doctor interview right. you know I, yeah doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense. It's showing the corporate capture. And I just want to say quickly mm -hmm. here that earlier when I was kind of pushing back with you about as far as supplementing oh, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. um, uh, probiotics at the time of getting antibiotics, the situation we're talking about here when somebody is actively sick. Now, obviously, we want people to build their biomes before they get sick so that mm -hmm. you've got this on board through eating cultured food, digging in organic soil, you know, hugging your friends, petting the dog, all of those things that fill your biome, right? right. But if you are sick and you know that you've been eating a sad diet, standard American diet, and you know your gut is not healthy, it may be maybe a time to particularly supplement because you're in emergency medicine right there. You don't have time to, for all of that stuff to happen. So um, there's a time and place for trying to take what would be a shortcut, right? And, you yeah. know, and this may be one and, and hopefully more people will do the science and, and show it. Um, anyway, Javier, I, any questions before we move on? Cause I think we're going to have to move on to our other subjects. Just a quick, uh, quick uh, question uh, for you, Dr. Healy. Uh, in terms of, I mean, there's been a lot of work that has been done on uh, uh, foods like uh, uh, pickled foods, mm -hmm. uh, naturally fermented foods. Uh, are those, would those be a good source of bifido? Yeah, thanks for bringing it up. As far as specifically bifido, we can't say because, you know, it depends on the culture and the culture medium, right? And was bifido there to begin with and a part of the culture medium? But um, I tell you one thing I do, you know, we can talk about what we do. And then I, I do want to talk about that. You specifically answer your question. One of the things I do is I'll get my probiotics and which have bifidobacterium in them and I'll open them up and put them in yogurt and let the yogurt sit in the refrigerator overnight for 24 hours. You know, because if there's live, if the, if the, if the, if the, if the probiotics you purchase are active, right. And they're supposed to, it says live and active on there. If they're active, then by opening them up and putting them in and, and mixing them in with yogurt. And then, you know, cause yogurt, we know will have acidophilus, but won't have bifidobacterium, even if it's on the label. Right. But if you take the active culture and put it in there and mix it up and then let it sit overnight, my theory, and I don't have anything empirical to substantiate this yet. Uh, Dr. Hazen wants me to test it with her, but, um, is that by doing that, you're giving the live, the live active cultures 24 hours in the refrigerator to start to promote themselves. And so that you're going to get a better density of, of bifidobacterium in that, you know, and other probiotics in, in, that, uh, in that culture. So that's one. Okay. And I, I kind of got that from Natasha Trenev because I remember making yogurt. She, she had a, her first book was showing people how to make yogurt in their oven and then let it sit out culture and all that stuff. Right. 
Um, but I, I do think there's a lot to be said for the fermented products, you know, so if your body can tolerate them, um, and it's, you know, if you can, and you can't, because usually the taste, if the taste, if you enjoy the taste, that's your body telling you, you can handle them. And if you can't stand the taste, that's usually your body saying, nope, that's not for me. But the kombuchas, um, I think I was talking with some doctors at uh, Doctors Data, and they said one of the best prebiotics, uh, Javier, was, um, <laughs> was actually chickpeas. Blew me away. I was like, are you kidding me? Chickpeas? He was like, not. He's, and he said definitively, not a doubt about it. Um, the best thing you could do is, is chickpeas with your hummuses. And, and yeah, chickpeas, like garbanzo beans. But here we have to stress one of the most highly sprayed and covered mm -hmm. in pesticides and herbicides and glyphosate is your chickpea. So organic only. Amen. It's worth a few extra. It doesn't cost much more for chickpeas. They're pretty cheap, even if they were organic. Mm -hmm. um, but otherwise, you're going to be destroying all the goodness that you did there. So that's good to know. Yeah. You, you, and you know me, Bernadette, everything I do is organic, plant-based, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's so thank you for throwing that in there. Cause I almost slipped. Cause sometimes, you know, you are organic, 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 organic. And you just assume everybody knows that that's what you mean. Yes. Mm -hmm. Always organic, eat organically yeah. folks. Yes. Yeah. Sure. No, you know, people don't know you say sauerkraut and they'll get like canned sauerkraut or jar mm -hmm. that's on the shelf stable. It's like, mm -hmm. no, that's a dead product. It tastes like mm -hmm. sauerkraut, but it's not. You got to go to the fermented live refrigerated section mm -hmm. to get the stuff and or learn how to make it yourself. It's it's really it's a little time consuming. But once you figure it out, nature does most of the work for you there. So or all ain't, of the work. Ain't nature great. I love nature. I love yeah. nature. <laughs> um, okay. So we've got about you know, 12 minutes, maybe uh, around there. So we've got sure. two big topics to cover. Sure. Let's go on to what's going on with this, um, this congressional call for a grand jury. Amen. Well, uh, we've had two awesome senators that contacted us when they found out we were doing some stuff, uh, Senator Dennis Linthicum and Senator Ken Thatcher. Uh, they're both senators in the state of Oregon. And they said, they came to us and they did something I so respect. Educate us. Mm. What did you find? They didn't say, hey, I want to do it, you know, just because it sounds good. They said, I want to make sure that I understand what you're talking about. So we did. We answered all their questions. We educated them, uh, me and my team. And they were like, their jaws were dropped. They're like, wow, this explains a lot. This explains a lot of why we can't do something simple like Senator Linthicum had submitted a, re a records request for the CT values, the cycle threshold values for all the positive PCRs. They wouldn't give it to him. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? I'm trying, you know, the, the, it, this information that's key shouldn't be proprietary. If you're an elected official, you should be able to, if you're a, pub, if you're a citizen, you should be able to get it. It should be published on all the, the state health department sites. So um, I think we all know there's something really wrong here. There's a lot really wrong here. And so yeah. it was really reassuring to know that there are still good people in elected positions that really care about their constituents, not just the ones that elected them in, that they care about mm -hmm. all of them. And Senator Kim Thatcher and Senator Dennis Linthicum, I can testify for. I, I will go to the wall for both of them, right? Because um, they didn't have to do any of this. They, they sought us out, we educated them, and they said, okay, what can we do about it? And I said, well, we tried to submit a grand jury petition last year after we published our peer-reviewed work on the violations uh, the CDC had of the three important laws, the Administrative Procedures Act, the Paperwork Reduction Act, and the 
uh, Information Quality Act. And all of those violations led, in our opinion, to, uh, and we published this in the paper, to a hyperinflation of all cases, hospitalizations, and fatalities. And not just like a little bit, Bernadette. We're talking like mm-hmm. a 90% inflation in death certificates. This, this is not something that is small, okay? And this is mm-hmm. why we're calling for not only a independent grand jury investigation into this, but also a full audit of all death certificates. We got to correct these counts. This mm-hmm. is this is these are not right. And so um, so they they said, okay, well, what can we do? I said, well, if you want to this this what we, this work we've done is dead right now. Do you all want to sponsor the petition and we resubmit it to the new acting um, U.S. Uh, U.S. Attorney for the state of Oregon? They said, yep, let's do it. So. Um, this process, of course, takes time. You know, you got to educate people and put it together. But they submitted it a little over a month ago. And a couple of weeks after that, they got notification that it had been received. This is the first thing we had ever gotten on it. And they've now been in in communication with um, that, that we got word that the Department of Justice has acknowledged its receipt as well. So now they are, we're, we're, we're trying to do the right thing, collaborate mm-hmm. with people to say, hey, this needs to be investigated. If the investigation is incredibly thorough and transparent and it shows that we're wrong, I'll tell everybody, I'll tell the whole world, look, I was wrong, mm-hmm. you know, but we know we're not on this, right. you know? So um, we know we're not because Santa Clara County and uh, Alameda County both did soft audits on their death certificates and they had to lower their death counts by 22 and 25% respectively. So we're, we know we're not, I mean, that's, that's not a small number. You can't mm-hmm. be off on something like this by 22 and 25%, right? And that probably doesn't include at all the people who died because they were not given proper treatment. It, it, it doesn't even address that. And that's what we're saying. It's like, we haven't even gotten into the withholding of evidence-based treatment because we did a little bit more work um, this year and we published another peer-reviewed paper on this. And this was like a 400-page beast that we published mm-hmm. on it. And when we published it, we said, you know, the thing that I didn't know this, you know, when you go into writing something and, and doing the investigative work, you don't know where the investigation is going to take you. You know, you have some questions you want answered, but you don't know what the depth is going to be. And what where it ultimately took us was back Bernadette to the Tuskegee experiment mm-hmm. and uh, establishment of a legal concept called willful misconduct. And willful misconduct was established in the um, congressional investigation of what happened with the Tuskegee experiment and uh, written about in the Belmont report. And then, um, and then really is the substance for our informed consent laws, 45 CFR 46. And what they, what they s- said was that it is unethical and an act of willful misconduct to knowingly withhold evidence-based treatments from people in need. And so I said, well, if that's true for those 399 um, Black American men who were really effed over by the CDC and the American Medical Association, Mm -hmm. then what what do we think about withholding evidence-based treatments from 332 million Americans? Yeah, you know, globally in India, there's a group of attorneys that have filed um, against, I forget the woman's name, but she's had somewhere with the medical people in India, and she's with the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. I mean, criminal charges against her for willful misconduct, for withholding information about ivermectin, because wherever they're using in India, their COVID um, rates plummet. they, They just plummet. And yeah. we saw that in Nicaragua as well. Nicaragua is actually sending around packets with ivermectin, vitamin D, vitamin C. I forget what else is in the packet, but they're sending mm-hmm. out health packets. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, 
Yeah, this, we should have been doing this last year, but way to go, Nicaragua. I know, Nicaragua. For, for doing, right? And it's like, if Nicaragua can do that, why can't we do that? Why can't we? That yeah. doesn't. That doesn't make sense to me, right? Yeah, it so, only makes dollars and cents for certain individuals. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna I push you on. We've got just like six sure. more minutes, and I can really I, can wanna... I make one quick comment about yes. that? Okay. Yes. So uh, with that, we we did do a press release, and your audience can go to StandForHealthFreedom.com, StandForHealthFreedom.com, to join the almost a hundred thousand Americans who've signed on in agreement with this petition. Okay. We need more numbers. We need as many numbers as we can get. So if you haven't already, go to Stand for Health Freedom. You'll find the latest on the uh, on the press release that came out, and you can find the campaigns to call for a congressional investigation mm -hmm. and a grand jury investigation. They've been awesome partners for us, and we just love everything that Le Leah Wilson and her whole team are doing over at Stand for Health Freedom. Fantastic. I agree. Support them 100%. They're awesome. Informed Choice Washington uh, does partner with them. Mm -hmm. Love the work that we're doing. So let's move on and spend the last few minutes inspiring people about this great event you've got coming up in October called COVIDCon. Let's hear the details. All right. So if you're interested, you can go to COVIDCon21.com. And we have a lot of free resources on there. We have free resources on, on how to fight uh, against employee mandates. Uh, peace, we're all about peaceful protest, okay? Peaceful, apply peaceful pressure. Um, uh, we also have information that we talked about earlier on uh, immune priming and treatment strategies to kind of coincide with what Dr. Pierre Corey has published at the FLCCC. So you can get that, it's all free, okay? And then if you wanna join us um, at COVIDCon, it's, very unique concept. I said, Bernadette, it was time to bring everybody together. We've got to start talking about this. We can, this cannot be a perpetual crisis. We've got to start bringing people together. We've got to bring doctors. We got to bring scientists. We got to bring activists. We got to bring um, journalists. We got to bring elected officials together. We've got to bring this diverse group of people together talking not about the problems. We know what the problems are talking about the solutions. What are we going to do to be able to apply peaceful pressure on this? Mm -hmm. So uh, we wanted to create an event that would have multi um, benefits for everybody. One of the big mm -hmm. questions I get is what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And I love that about Americans. We want to help, right? Yeah. And so I said, listen, let's create an event where we bring the best and the brightest, Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. David Martin, uh, Pam Popper from Make Americans Free Again, uh, Kevin Jenkins uh, from the Urban Global Health Alliance, Dr. James Lyons-Weiler, Senator uh, Dennis Linthicum, uh, George Wentz, uh, world famous attorney, uh, myself, we're adding more people on. Leah Wilson's going to speak there. Uh, we're going to have some a lot of great people there. We're we're we're, probably, we're working with the CHD to see uh, to see how they want to be involved in everything. Sayer G, uh, Green Med Info is going to pump it out for us. He's all on board with it. We're bringing people together from a diverse group of backgrounds for one simple purpose: to do the right thing. Okay. to find out what that is. So what we're going to do, Bernadette, and this is what's really cool. Everybody who participates in it, the all the attendees, whether you're in person or, or online, of course, we might get cyber attack. But if you're online, we're going to do everything to make sure that that's protected. And you get to participate because we're going to have action-based workshops every single day where you get to participate and we get to craft out and collaborate on what we're going to do to solve this problem and apply peaceful pressure. Mm -hmm. um, we are going to make sure that the after expenses 
all funding goes to the, all the proceeds go to support unbiased science to support legal efforts that we're going to support with that funding your money is going to go to support legal efforts and your money is going to go to support education on this we're we are going to make sure your money makes a difference it's not i'm not here to be i will never be a millionaire i'll let everybody know this i have no desire to be that i don't care i'm, <laughs> I'm never going to be that this is about us doing the right thing and having the funding to do it and on the last day bernadette this is the big deal on the last day we are going to be ratified. We're going to be calling an official session, and we're going to ratify three important proposals: a, a proposals for amendments to the Bill of Rights, a proposal for medical freedom, a proposal for employee freedom, and a proposal for uh, student freedom. And we're Fantastic. going to make sure that the right people in Congress get those, Rand Paul, Senator Johnson, so that hopefully in 22, there's a turnover, we get into a balanced state, and we can actually push these into real deal amendments to our Bill of Rights so that we never have to go through this nightmare ever again. Amen. Amen. And that's the perfect thing to so, wrap up this show today. They, I'm can, can I throw, can I throw a poll? Can I give you a promo code real quick? Yes. For listeners, ICWA, go to covidcon21.com, put in the promo code ICWA, and that is going to help out Bernadette and Informed Life Radio in a big way. ICWA as your promo code, get 10% promo off your, uh, your admission. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. H and Javier Figueroa. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to an informed life radio and 1150 AM KKNW. During this unprecedented response to an infection outbreak, it has been made very clear that shutting down lives and businesses is not sustainable or repeatable. We've also learned that it's unnecessary. Treatments exist and always exist. For 99% of the population, nutrients and oxidative therapies that support the immune system and improve symptoms are always available to address viral infections. For the less than 1% who need more, inexpensive, unpatentable drugs can be added to the nutrient therapies to improve outcomes. It's time each and every one of us empower ourselves with this knowledge. We need not ever bring our lives to a halt again. We can both save lives and retain the liberty that nourishes us body and soul. Learn more at healthyimmunitynow.org. That's healthyimmunitynow.org. Are you suffering from a sinking feeling that the COVID-19 pandemic is being blown out of proportion and that nothing in the news is making any sense? If so, then there is a fact-based, science-driven news show designed just for you. My name is Del Bigtree, and I am the host of The High Wire, the world's most trusted news source in digital media when it comes to accurate, science-based reporting on the COVID-19 pandemic. From COVID-19 vaccine development to mask mandates, school shutdowns to job layoffs, The High Wire goes beyond providing you with the most accurate, evidence-based investigations. We send you links to the sources for all of our reporting so that you can further your own investigation and come to your own informed conclusions. High above the agenda-driven circus of mainstream media, we do not run. We do not hide from the truth. Instead, we walk the high wire. If you care about truth, then join us on Instagram, Twitter, Roku, and our website, thehighwire.com. 
Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization that advocates for healthy immunity, medical freedom, and fully informed medical consent. The right to make medical choices without coercion is fundamental to our civil liberties and a basic principle in all human rights declarations. To learn more, tune in each Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. to an Informed Life Radio and visit the website informedchoicewa.org. It's time to take a stand for medical freedom. Go to informedchoicewa.org today.